Hello! Welcome to another episode of Pod for the Planet. This is a very special episode that I am very excited to share with you today. A few weeks ago, I hosted the first ever live recording of this podcast. The event, Late Night for the Planet, was hosted at the wonderful Olive Ridley's here in Plattsburgh, New York. The idea behind this event was to create a space for people to come watch and join in on discussions about environmental issues in a more comfortable, laid-back setting. So, here's the audio from the event. Please enjoy. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Timmy and to Jim here at Olive Ridley's for helping us make this a reality and embracing this idea. And with that, I want to introduce the hosts of our show, Michaela Hendrick and Charles Olson, two students for which I could not be more proud as I am right now. So big round of applause. Uh, welcome to the first ever Late Night for the Planet, Plattsburgh's first and only late night talk show about the environment. I hope everyone has gotten a chance to take advantage of the drink special, grab some food. Let's see some drinks. All right, cool. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Charles Wilson. I'm a junior here at SUNY Plattsburgh. Well, over there at SUNY Plattsburgh. Uh, I'm an environmental studies major, uh, and I am the host of the Pod for the Planet podcast. So uh, you can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, drop a like, subscribe to it, and give me five stars, because your boy needs those ratings. That's what I hear. Thank you. Uh, I'm here tonight with my co-host and good friend, Michaela Henry. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, um, Charles and I are so glad to have you here with us tonight. We hope you came armed with questions for our panelists. Um, does it ever feel overwhelming how much concern you have for the environment? Yeah. Yeah. Does it ever feel like you're the only one who cares at times? Or maybe the only people sitting in your classrooms are the only one who cares? Discussions about climate change and environmental degradation can be a real downer. So, for those of you who don't know, I'm a senior studying environmental science at SUNY Plattsburgh, and Charles and I both have a passion for environmental communication. And fashion. <laughs> so, we think that this show is a place where we can learn, ask tough questions, hear new ideas, and above all, have some fun and drinks. You're supposed to woo at that part. All right! <laughs> We really do live in a society, you know? We live in a media and political landscape in the United States that continues to talk about climate change as if it's still a debate whether or not it exists. Well, we here, we know that it does, and I'm beyond excited to be here today and expand upon that conversation a little bit more. I've set out with my podcast and this event with the hope that by making these tough and complex issues more approachable, people will be more inclined to engage and make change. This show might challenge what you think you know about climate change. And it might make you a little bit uncomfortable at times. That's okay. Yeah. Okay? Uh, but this is the first time anything like this has ever been done before in Plattsburgh, or, as far as I know, in New York. So, enjoy that. You're part of something pretty brand new. So, thank you for coming out tonight. Drink up. Uh, and let's get ready and try to make this climate change fun. Discussions like these help break barriers in environmental topics. And they help us understand and think more critically about topics like climate change, environmental justice, and a changing planet. We thank you again for spending your night with us. We really, really appreciate you giving us a shot for our first night at this. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get our guests on stage. Our first guest tonight is a professor of sociology here at SUNY Plattsburgh with an expertise in environmental justice issues and an experience working with the United Nations. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Lauren Eastwood. Come on. Table. Don't spill the beer. So, uh, so just a few weeks ago, Warren, uh, you were on my podcast uh, with my good friend and co-host Romel over there in the back. Uh, and we were talking about the social justice teaching that we had at the school. Uh, 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. I guess so. Now? See, it's the first time we're doing this. We're working out the kinks. This is supposed to happen. Yeah. Anything that happens on the stage, it's right a facade. It. It's all an act. We're actors. <laughs> uh, so, social justice teaching, uh, any of you who go to SUNY Plattsburgh, I'm sure you saw it, and if you weren't able to attend anything, it happened. Um, I didn't know that you wrote a book. Uh, and it is called Negotiating the Environment, Civil Society, Globalization, and the United Nations. Really quick. Oh this is just a, I mean, that's I like the we got the book. So, really I'll pay quick. ten bucks to read it. Can you, can you tell the audience what it's about? Uh, and okay, if, you, if you're running low on Ambien, that is the book for you. <laughs> so, wait, really? No, it did put me to sleep. No, I mean, really? I'm supposed to talk about this? No, I'm talking about it. Alright, so... Give it, give us know, am I allowed to swear? Yes, you are so okay. allowed to swear. Y'all know that intergovernmental climate negotiations are completely fucked. So that's what I've studied and basically wrote a book about it. So read it. It's interesting, fascinating, compelling. Read it. And Great. weep. Read it and weep, literally. Thank you. <laughs> and now for our next guest. Yeah. No, you gotta stay up. You can keep drinking. Is the thing. Oh, okay. So up next, I would like to welcome to the stage Dr. Michael Devine. With his hipster attire, sabbatical look. Michael has a rich professional career in early film, literature, and the visual arts. He places a focus on interdisciplinary learning in his classes, often reaching into different fields and focuses. Locally, Michael started a regional film initiative called Adirondacks. So let's give another warm welcome to Michael. Thank you. All right. That's Adirondacks. It's a play on words. Docs. Uh, any English majors in the house? Yeah. There we go. Nice. So, artists like Kendrick Lamar are known for reaching outside of their boxes as just creators and tackling some really heavy political and social topics like mass incarceration, mass incarceration, racism, and drug abuse. So, can you give us an example of an artist, writer, or creator like Kendrick or someone in your personal life that you recall making use of their artistry to make an impact in the environmental movement? Jeez, this is... Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, I, you know, one of the things that I would say is I'm not exactly sure why Kurt would invite me to a beer, and then she was my student, and the question was, I was, I have a question for you, how much did you think I knew about the environment when I was teaching? <laughs> Kurt spoke very, well, very uh, highly. I have to say, more than anything, I think the dynamic between you and Kurt in a classroom together was probably the most entertaining uh, aspect of the uh, class. Yeah. But uh, I think that you gave us some great and you know just rich research and knowledge on film for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as the environment, though, I mean, I do teach a lot of uh, things that kind of work as allegories. You know, I've been thinking lately. Just this is a digression. I mean, this is like. We're not talking about our book. Is this like McDonald's? <laughs> but I was thinking about Notre Dame recently, right? Notre Dame Cathedral. And I was thinking, like, what is it about something that's just stone and wood that, like, communicates? And, like, how do you communicate either the environment or how do you communicate things that make people feel them, right? Um, and I think, like, here's a film. Does anyone know the film uh, Beast of the Southern Wild by Ben Zeitlin? Anybody see Beast of the Southern Wild? Yeah? <laughs> Anybody see recently the Florida Project? Florida Project? Yeah. See, there's some great indie filmmaking going on that is indirectly about the environment. Beast of the Southern Wild is about a girl, hush puppy, she's five years old. And it's set against the backdrop of Hurricane Katrina, and it's like a really beautiful film. I think it's one of the best films of the last decade. 
And I think uh, somebody like Ben Zeitlin, he's a major filmmaker. He's got a film coming out now that's uh, Peter Pan, it's Wendy, it's called. And it's going to have an environmental, subtle, kind of complex, allegorical backdrop. But to me, that's, that's a successful art these days. It's not documentaries, it's not really Al Gore, it's not really things that feel didactic. It's things that feel like they're somehow allegorical and they're working on multiple levels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, and now for our next guest. So lucky. <laughs> our next guest used to be a floodplain specialist for FEMA and now currently owns her own business which works to help counties and municipalities update their hazard mitigation plan. Please help me welcome Ms. Tess Grubb. <laughs> Tess, how are you? You were also a guest on one of my previous episodes of my podcast. Uh, would you be able to really quickly tell me a little bit about the work you did for FEMA? Um, first, I was a floodplain manager, so I worked with state and local governments um, reviewing their floodplain ordinances and um, helping them understand what they had to do for new construction to make it less vulnerable to floods. And then the second part of my career with FEMA was managing the hazard mitigation planning program that um, made them eligible for post-disaster funds to mitigate damage to their jurisdictions. Fantastic. Now for our next guest. So, up to the stage last, I'd like to welcome Adam Saslow. So, Adam works as an environmental conflict mediator and facilitator. He had a career in the EPA and opened a private consulting firm during his career. So, Adam, welcome. You gotta share yours, I'm sorry. We do, we do. Share, so I was wondering, could you tell the audience a little bit about what it means to be an environmental conflict mediator? What types of conflicts have you worked directly on? I know we've worked together before, so. And I'd say what it means is probably to be. Yeah. Michaela. Yeah. We can speak directly into it. Three days of mediating. I guess I just don't project well. Um, it means that I'm a glorified referee, really. Um, for the most part, I make sure that people play nicely together in a public policy debate. And ideally, nobody bleeds, and nobody brings weapons, and everybody leaves with at least a small smile on their face. All right. So uh, let's get into our first question, Charles. Okay. So I'm from Long Island. Anybody else? Long Island. Lit. Uh, and my experience so far with climate change uh, is primarily hurricanes, coastal erosion, invasive species. As a Long Islander, I'm painfully aware of the threats posed from sea level rise and an increase in powerful storms. Michael, Lauren, uh, you're from here, that's her. You live here that long enough. Lauren lives on my street. She is from Plattsburgh. Oh, yeah, you, you know each other. Perfect. Michael lives on my street. Tess, is, Tess uh, you're from Keysville. Uh, and Adam Willsburg. Willsburg. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, and Adam, you're from Atlanta? I've, everyone's correcting me, so. I'm actually from East Meadow, New York. East oh, Meadow! All of this wrong! Regents Man Islanders. Islanders. Sorry. I'm not talking to you. Uh, Mets or Yankees? We're done. We're done. Uh, the conversation's I'm over. We'll go. <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia. So, just in case. Alright. Now that we know where everybody's from. Go <laughs> What are some local climate shifts that you have noticed in your homes over the past however many years? Uh, I'll start with, yeah, so uh, Philadelphia, uh, if anyone knows Philadelphia, it's like living in a Bruce Springsteen song. That's what, you know, you have the shore, you have the glory of Philadelphia. And one of the major issues is the kind of, uh, is there any baby boomers in the house? Yeah, Don't yeah. say it if you are. Okay. <laughs> uh, the great kind of like McMansion-ization of the Jersey Shore, which has received unbelievable flooding over the past uh, 10 years or so. And they just keep bringing in, what is it, the Army Corps of Engineers or something? 
uh, to like just buttress the, somehow block the ocean from coming. But it's amazing. I mean, what used to be like these little ranch kind of community or just these, you know, uh, 10,000 square foot mansions that go into the ocean. And that's a major issue in New Jersey, if anyone's wondering. Lauren, Tess, leave. I mean, just to sort of play off of that, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to see what happened with the flooding that took place here a few years back, and certainly Irene. Uh, I mean, what we see here in the global north is that uh, people on lakefront or oceanfront property are the wealthy folks, right? And so they're insured to the hilt, and that's not an environmental justice issue. They're making sure that they've got their asses covered. But when we look Thank at you. globally, oh, sorry. No, no, that is a great. I thought you said I could swear. You, no, no, you can't swear. Okay. It wasn't about the swear. I was saying you just segueing nicely into my next question. Oh, well, because we share a brain. We've already determined that. I mean, Best friend. His work's Best not friend. better than mine. What do you got from you? Yeah, yeah. All right. What does climate mean in your, in your, in your community? community? Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about my growing up in East Meadow, New York. I live in Atlanta. And climate's really affected us. I have beach on property. Yeah, you're insured, oh, right? Well, soon. Just buy some more real estate and we'll be good. What's wrong with that? You're uh, I don't think they're investigating. I'm miles from the ocean, and yet I do. It's a joke, but I'll understand. I'm not going to miss Maisel anymore. I'm done. On the other end of the scale um, is how winter in the Adirondacks has become less um, severe than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Our snow, annual snow loads are down, which affect the recharge or our aquifers. We can see a two-week um, difference in the freeze time and growing. So climate change is happening. So uh, a couple months ago, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change released a report that said we have about 12 years to fix all the shit we're in and we're fucked. Basically, what it said. Yeah, I know. Really fun stuff, guys. This is supposed to be a comedy show, but I'm getting to the comedy part of it. Uh, my, I have a bunch of questions about this, but my first question is, uh, what role do you think the federal government should play uh, in climate change, adaptation, and mitigation? Well, currently, uh, yeah, currently, uh, we'll let's, 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 let's assume in two years from now things will change and that we will not have this current administration. Because if you look at the current administration, we just got a new EPA administrator who is an old lobbyist. Yeah. The old, so I'm just writing off the next two years. So what the federal government can do, and one thing that recently came to my attention was the um, refugees from Guatemala and Honduras mainly came here because they had a, such a severe drought in their home country that they had crop loss three years in a row. So we can see how climate change in another country impacts our country. We need to, um, I heard something on the news today um, from Bolton who said our foreign policy should be our country first. And my immediate thought was, but not harming another country. We need to have a foreign policy that does look at our interests first while not negatively impacting another country. And if we could institute that thing alone, we could see a lot more positive changes in our country as well as other countries. Of course, yeah. I don't feel it. So I'm not hopeful that this gets into a philosophical debate. And I agree, we're two years away from doing what I'm going to propose. The issue is that, at this point, is that we've lost the ability to have an adult's conversation. What we're trying to do here? What we're trying to do here? Yeah, well, we're trying. I tried that, and it, you know, the miles of beachfront property didn't work. So, so but, but, but in, in all seriousness, there, there is a percentage of people that do not understand climate change. And we've devolved to the point where no one is willing to defend their perspective because they don't understand it to the degree necessary to defend it. And so what happens? Not that. Well, maybe it is. We drown each other out by name calling and saying, you're wrong, you're, I mean, I lean to the left heavily. You're a libtard. 
what? Now I have to defend myself against name calling, and we're not going to grapple with the facts. And until we grapple with the facts, as you see them, as I see them, as you see them, we can't solve that. So what can the federal government do two years from now? Create the stage to have the adult conversation. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, my final part of this is we are currently living in the age of environmental shame. Uh, I'm sure, raise your hands if you have ever been given a weird look for using a plastic straw at Tim Hortons or somewhere. Yeah? Just the environmental majors? There's this idea where the consumers, us, uh, should be blamed for our actions if they have a negative effect on the environment. Uh, my, my question for all of you is, is how do we convey to the environmental movement, convey to different groups that the blame should not be put on the consumer, should not be put on us. We need to shift our focus to the systems we live in. How can we do that? What's a pathway forward for that? Well, I think that you're in a little bit of a bind because once you're in a kind of capitalist system which not only shames but it rewards and eco-purchases, the virtue signaling that is happening through that, which is the flip side of the coin of, of shaming, is a kind of marketing dialectic, which is, you know, it, it, it's kind of beyond the system, right? Like, it, so it's, it's, you're in a marketing kind of conundrum where the environment itself is just a kind of brand that you're either on the side of, or you're not on the side of, whether the, so, which actually suggests that consuming more, but in a kind of virtuous way, is a kind of good thing. Um, there's a movie about this. It's called Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Now let's oh. talk about that. Here. Single serving. Uh, but, but so, yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that the healthy thing about the kind of Bernie Sanders uh, dialectic of American politics right now is that the old kind of 19th century commentarian, uh, Eugene Debs, uh, presidential Marxist candidate, 1912 was, got 6% of the presidential vote while in prison in 1912. Uh, that is actually in the mainstream of American society, which is actually a very healthy thing because America is a very weird place full of a lot of very weird people. And the political parties, which can be very uh, vanilla uh, and have been post-World War I, post-Woodrow Wilson, uh, um, don't give you that kind of sense, right? Like in the past, you know, people would like kill each other on the congressional floor. Do we want Shocking that? I don't know, but I mean, like, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, dueling. I mean, yeah. Good. All right, well, but I'm Are we allowed to argue with yes, each other? Please argue. Because I'd like to contest the fact, and I'm not arguing with you, hipster mustache man. Uh, I just leave my neighbor up to give him a little shit. So, but, but I'd like to take issue with the fact that we're not doing something about climate change because we don't know. Because I don't think that's an issue. I mean, this is an issue, like, we accept science when it deals with cancer research. We accept science when it deals with anti-vaxxers aside, but I mean, climate science, there has been the manufacture of denial. So, I mean, I don't think it's just coming down to whether we can have an adult conversation or not. If we look historically, that the whole reason that we do not have people on board in the United States, and I'm taking an international perspective here because we are an outlier. We, you know, we are a country that it has our head in the sand on purpose due to the fact that that the manufacture of denial has been a, a major part of our fabric. And to tie on to what Hipster Man over there is saying, like I do really think that it's a part of our, our identity. I have a name. I have a name. <laughs> I'll remember it one of these days. So, it's Greg Gallagher! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, so, but it's really part of our identity this treadmill of production, use more resources, you're a better American, I mean, consume, consume. So I think that's something that we really need to address before we move on to another question. In case, in, case, well, no, 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 in case you missed it, she's coming after me. I'll give you a minute to... And, and, and let's just be clear, I am on your side. But, 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 
But that's a difficult, difficult thing to kind of break away from. That's post-World War II kind of culture. So the question of like how to convince people of this is stories that are local and significant and hum human. And like Adir Adirondacks, what I do, like documentary movements, folk movements, a return to a kind of like a folk wisdom, a husbandry of the land, and stuff like that is like all signs of help. That's true, yeah. And scope is so important in all of these stories. I think uh, having local stories uh, creates a whole different effect for people and how they perceive their news and how it affects them as well. Can we get someone from the other end of the table? If you don't have anything, that's fine too. I am never for a lot of I think having a 24-hour news cycle is not a good thing. And when um, on C-SPAN they had a 25-year program after uh, Three Mile Island, the nuclear accident in outside of Harrisburg, and the panel, at, and, and I think it was at, I can't remember where in D.C. it was um, filmed, but one of the participants who was at the plant during the incident said two things, that if the accident had happened today, they would have reacted differently because of the 24-hour news cycle. They had time during the incident to think about how to control it, what they were going to do. And it also was very helpful that Jimmy Carter, when we landed in Harrisburg, was a nuclear engineer, and so the scientists at the plant could talk to a president and have it, what they were saying understood. A president who, who, knew, who knew something? A president who knew something? Jimmy Carter was a nuclear engineer, on a, he was on a naval, Navy vessel. I'm getting, I'm getting lightheaded. Um, the other point I want to make is, because of the way our political system is, because people raise money for their election campaigns, because we don't have a pot of money nationwide where you split it evenly for the presidential candidates, we have our politicians being bought and sold. We all know this. These, this is two things that I've, I've had conversations with conservatives and we agree on actually three things. <laughs> that we need true campaign finance reform because our politicians are being bought and sold. We need term limits so that we get new blood in there. And the third thing that I found and was amazed that it is an agreement upon, nobody wants to have an abortion. I think and if you start from that, especially that third point, that is the one area where I can talk with um, an anti-choice person, and that is the seed that everyone can agree that nobody wants to have an abortion. I know we're getting on a different thing, but let's pull this our back to the So um, we are going to go into a game next, but I just want to talk really quickly to wrap up that uh, conversation about media, that um, it can often feel like we're drowning in uh, doom and gloom media. So I encourage all of you, try to look for optimistic news outlets. There are lots of people out there telling good stories as well uh, that can really help uh, motivate people a lot better than the doom and gloom cast. So definitely look to those. Okay, so for our game. So this game is called I Call Bullshit. So related to the topic of news and attention-grabbing headlines, we've moved into an era of clickbait-flooded news stories and viral videos. There's days you read headlines and start questioning what's fake news and what's not. We're going to put an audience member's fake news filter to the test. So here's how it's going to work. Our panelists are each going to get a headline to read, and that audience member will have to choose the one fake headline amongst the three real ones. So can I get a volunteer from the audience who wants to play? Who knows their fake Let's news? See. I see Ramel Ramel? Yeah, come on. Alright, so 
we will start with Michael. He will read our first headline, and we will go down the line. Once all four headlines are completed, you will get to choose which one is fake. Keep in mind, all of the ones that they are reading are real with just one fake one in the middle. Okay, so, Michael, our first headline. You ready, Dan? You ready? I'm ready. Climate change report was scare tactic. Check facts. It's based on Mark, uh, next. Okay, so, so there the species roller bears, which we all know, the cute underside to the story of global climate change and interspecies breeding. Climate change can be stopped by turning air into gasoline. <laughs> A billion people live in these underground nuclear bunkers. All right, one fake amongst those four fantastic headlines. Choice I think it's yours. That is wrong. The fake headline was roller bears, the cute underside to the story of global climate change and interspecies breeding. No such thing as a grizzly bear, polar bear, genetic mutation. Uh, I'm sorry. Please All right, so we do have one more round. One more round. Who wants to go? Who wants to try it? We need another volunteer. Another volunteer. Please. This guy over here. Come on. All right, come on up. Mi nombre es Miguel. Okay, quickly, what's your name? Miguel. Nice to meet you. All right, so let's hear our headlines. Floating cities could ease the world's housing crunch. <laughs> the glaciers are melting. Why you should be road tripping to see them before they're gone. <laughs> Three strategies for finding snow. As waters rise, Miami Beach builds higher streets and political willpower. That one. <laughs> and the answer was, the glaciers are melting. Why, you should be road tripping to see them right now. Thank you. 
Temperatures are reading, reaching minus 60 degrees. 
coldest ever recorded. In coming days, expected to get colder. People can't last outside for minutes. What's going on with global warming? Please, come back fast. We need you. It's a disaster. No good. It's a disaster. weekend in New York City. It's still October. So much for global warming. But I'll tell you this, 
I've seen filmmakers like Wee Wee, the Chinese uh, protest artist who has a film called Human Flow about uh, world migration. I suggested to you already Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, my point is that I think you need to always, always create a big, big tent where you're inviting people in. Strange as they may be, pretentious as they may be. Perhaps those people are dressed better than you. But my point Thank is... You. Thank you. Uh, before we move on, uh, we just have a video that we'd like to play that'll feed into this question. From wildfires in Alberta to hurricanes in Puerto Rico, climate change is one of the reasons many of us are forced to leave our homes in search of a safer place to live. We keep hearing that migration is a crisis, and it is, for the people affected. But did you ever notice that the same leaders denying climate change are the ones driving up fear and hatred against migrants? Hatred with horrific consequences. We know their arguments are lies. In the real world, immigration builds our economies. Wealthy countries are already facing aging populations and seriously taking on climate change will create millions more jobs than there are workers to fill them. But it's not about the truth. These leaders are stoking fear to divide the progressive majority so they can take power and protect the status quo. The rich getting richer by wrecking the climate and abusing workers. As the saying goes, the enemy does not arrive by boat, he arrives by limousine. More and more people in the climate movement are connecting the dots. To win climate justice, we need to oppose racism. We know the world's wealthiest countries have burned most of the carbon that is driving climate change today. Asserting the rights of migrants affected by these storms, floods and fires is a way of paying back our climate debts and refusing to be divided. When we fight together, we win. So, that video connects everything that we've talked about so far, and it connects all of the things that you all have your backgrounds in. It talks about, we talked about migration, environmental justice, it was a film that was put together to send a message, and it talks about built, bridging uh, the gap between people. My only question from that, and we're going to end with this question here, is how do we develop an environmental narrative that brings in all stakeholders of all race, all economic class, all political affiliation, how do we bring them in to create a diverse and effective movement? All right, this is me, because that's my job. And it plays on the big tense comment that you just made, which I, I really believe in, it's gonna... I need a little latitude here because it's actually the same answer to the question before that I'm gonna give now. How do we bring people in? <clears throat> I think for the professors here, for the administrators of SUNY Plattsburgh, and for the students who are in the audience, I think it's on you to demand change. And here's the change. You three over there can go away because you heard this before. I said this to them when I was talking before. So, a two minute story, maybe 90 seconds. So my fiance and I had a conversation this week about, about higher education and, and how her Alabama father said he would not pay for marketing courses or science courses or technical knowledge that she was going to acquire wherever she went to school. He said that the key to growth was in liberal arts. And I said, man, I hire people and fire people every day I don't hire people with liberal arts degrees. I need people to come in with technical knowledge. And she said, hold on a second. When you're exposed to liberal arts, you're exposed to culture and literature and politics and religion and things that you don't find comfortable in your little buckets. And you learn to think critically and you say, why is that? And you look inwardly and you say, why do I believe the things that I do? 
And this generation, the generation that is being taught today, is being taught specialization with so little general ed that we lose the ability to question, to say, why do you believe what you do? Why are you making the decisions that you do? Why aren't we including indigenous populations or people of other race or beliefs? We lose that ability and we take our information from Fox News and from MSNBC. My boy Chris Cuomo is on TV now. I get a lot of information from him and I settle in with my glass of wine every weeknight. But we take our information from them and we don't question. So back to you, the teachers, the administration, the students, demand liberal arts. My paradigm changed this weekend. And I said, you know what? I need to hire some people with that background because they question why. Could you hire me, please? <laughs> I'd love a job. That'd be fantastic. Lauren, you have so, a... No, so, yeah. So that's the change. No, yeah. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, there's a difference between information and knowledge, but you can't determine what that is unless you have the skills to do that. So liberal arts, that's the way it is. It's critical thinking. And I mean, we're talking about changing the narrative and framing the narrative. Climate justice. That's something that took a lot of critical thinking. There were a bunch of, I mean, just having spent the last 22 years of my life in the halls of UN meetings, not entirely, also in the classroom, but uh, seeing this shift, I mean, from people who were saying, we've got to save the climate, we've got to save biodiversity, to people, indigenous people, social movements, really pushing, pushing that narrative to say, well, no, this is a justice, this is fundamentally a justice issue. We created this problem, the global north created this problem, but people in the global south are having to deal with it. So that narrative is really going to go quite far to make some change. Completely agree. Uh, so, thank you all. Uh, that wraps up our discussion for now. Uh, we are going to open the floor up for two minutes uh, to some questions from the audience for our panelists. Anybody have any questions?
to make them equal. But so you're suggesting that so if someone were to say evolution is complete bunk, and we've got one scientist out there who's got some really great scientific methods that are rep well that's not, well, that's the whole point is there are three thousand plus scientists who contribute to the assessment report. I'll take this as a no. I mean the one scientist is not gonna convince me because we have scientists who are saying this and who know they're paid by ExxonMobil. Wait, what what you don't sit down with one scientist and say, show me your research. Well, one that's becomes not how two. peer review works. One becomes two, two becomes three, three becomes four. You gotta if be all being first. paid by ExxonMobil. So, so you would tell me, you would say, no, I'm not even going to listen. This isn't a belief we, issue. Uh, this isn't a belief issue. Uh, can we get another question from the audience? <laughs> <laughs> um, Ray Thank you. Um, I heard a comment the other day, I won't say who it was from, that wind turbines cause cancer. The president said that. I'm not naming any names. What are your comments about that comment? Wind turbines? I have not done any research to um, investigate that, so I am only speaking from my personal belief, not science-based, but it seems that it would be um, a small probability that you would cause cancer from a wind turbine, but I have not done any of the research. Let's not even do Speaks to the importance of good science, good right? Science. Good science. Exactly. Continued education. Nick, you want to take us out here? You have a question back here. Oh. All right. You guys want to shower? Do you want to come up for a mic? Um, I guess I'll shout. Um, this is more of a comment um, thing. I just wanted to know opinions on how whitewash the environmental movement is. I can talk a little bit about that. Not so. from you, Charlie. I hear this from you every day. <laughs> <laughs> how how whitewashed or greenwashed? take a summer class with me, English 163, this summer, 
Um, Nobody. Uh, what you would see is that I think theorists of the environmental movement should draw those webs and show the, the threads that connect things because it's very easy to have a monolithic view of things. And that's what art and culture does. It makes things more complicated, more nuanced. It puts gargoyles in things. It makes you look at things in a different way. And once you get beyond just science and realizing the lived experience and cultural experience, you realize that maybe it is a richer uh, movement. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make you want to take us out. Yes. All right. So to wrap up that, I want to thank our audience members for these great questions, for participating, for coming. It means the absolute world to us for you to give us a shot. So we really, really appreciate it. Um, I'd like to thank our panelists, Tess, Michael, Adam, and Lauren. Um, our producer, Kurt, who's given us continuous guidance. We couldn't do most of this without him. So thank you. Professor Kurt Gervich for helping us produce this fantastic late night show. I'd like to thank my fantastic co-host Michaela, our excellent panelists for their insight, uh, all the people who came out to the show uh, live at Olive Ridley's, uh, and all the people who viewed it on the live stream, and I'd like to thank the good people at Olive Ridley's for letting us use the space. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions, uh, you can DM me on Instagram at char underscore Olson 16, or you can now follow me on Twitter at pod four. That's the number four, the planet. Uh, and again, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.